Hi everybody and welcome back to the Endless Hells podcast. I hope you're all well who's listening and watching along. I'm delighted to be able able to welcome back David Webb. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me back on. No, man, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on and we're going to get stuck no into a whole range of topics tonight. I think it's a perfect, as I said to you all further, kind of to round it off, come a wee bit of talk about transfers, how it goes on within professional football clubs. But before I go on to that, there is some interaction in the comments already. Phil McGinley's in, John's in. And I will encourage us, any questions you have for David Webb, fire them in, because I'll be giving them all barrels tonight anyway. Like So we're ready to crack <laughs> on. But before I, before I get into actual, like the the kind of scouting side of things and what, what you're up to now and what you've done, I want to talk about how you started, because I know briefly before we spoke, when it was all up in the air last year before the season started, there was speculation yes. about who was getting the Celtic job and would it be any yes. high, would you yeah. be involved? We had a good chat about that and things, and again, I appreciate that. But from yourself, your career, it's kind of a strange, or like a, not like a kind of football career path, so to speak. You went into the, the coaching, scouting, technical, technical director. How did it all start? Yeah, it all started probably back in about 2001 uh, with the old Wimbledon. I started off as a, like a community coach, working in schools, working at local kids. Then I was still sort of playing semi-pro at the time. And sort of I realised at 21 that my football career wasn't probably going to take off the way I wanted. But So I, um, I went down the coaching badge route, did my sort of, then it was a level two and then level three. And then... Uh, progressed up to sort of move into the academy setting to work with sort of underage, under 11s, under 12 teams. And then unfortunately, Wimbledon back then, it sort of folded um, as it did. And then I moved on to Crystal Palace, continuing doing the same sort of stuff with working with the academy. But I sort of had a good fascination of sort of, you know, recruiting young players because Palace at the time was back in 2002, three had a hot bed of talent sort of around the area. And I felt that when we was playing other local teams that we weren't really being, we probably lacked a little bit of the more sort of local talent, the street players. So being from not too far from the area, I sort of managed to sort of tap on some local resources, local clubs, local local affiliations, and then managed to sort of help Crystal Palace open up a few doors of looking at a different diverse player. And we was fortunate enough to have players like Wilfie Zaha come mm-hmm. through that process as well, which was... You know, he's Palace legend now. He's done phenomenal. Oh. So, um, from that, where did I go? I went to Tottenham. Uh, f- first stint at Tottenham. Again, continuing on the coaching scene with uh, more of the older age groups on this one. So, it was all 12, 13, 14. And so, we did some work with the under 16s as well. But still keeping a hand on recruitment. Still, you know, still enjoyed that part as well. Obviously, if I could on my extra time, you know, discover some new talent that would be good enough for Tottenham's Academy. I was there for about two, three years and moved on to Mill when my first sort of senior role was like head of like head of academy coaching. Um that was nines to fourteen and I had an emphasis still again on recruitment. And then I went a bit left field because I did the Academy manager's license back then at the time, two thousand and eight, nine. We had to do a European study. I ended up doing it in uh, Germany for Bayer Leverkusen and built a really good relationship over the first three days before I was just going to go there and do observations watch training, speak to some coaches see how it all works, how it runs how the club operates etc and then because I was doing a masters at the time in sports psychology they got me doing some, some sort of scouting work while I was there um, and they really enjoyed some of the stuff I did on the characteristic side of players especially the young players and from that when I sort of left to come back, I sort of had a conversation with Rudy Voller at the time. He said, would you be interested in um, just doing some like consultancy work or ad hoc work? If we needed you to look at a, a young talent that we're potentially looking at, um, would you be able to do some work on that for us? And I was like, yeah, no, it'd be great. If Mill were okay with it and Mill will be in, <laughs> in League One, um, <laughs> by Leverkusen being a big, Bundesliga club, there wasn't really no conflict of interest, shall we say. So, um, so that was that was really fun. Did that for sort of about eighteen months or so. Then I went to Southampton, pure scouting, fifteen to twenty ones. I was there for about three three and a half years. Um, love Southampton, great club. Got first affiliated with Maurizio, um, mm. one of my close colleagues, Paul Mitchell. So. 
I, I really liked all the work, work we was doing there, was sort of finding top talent that could be good enough for Southampton, but not only just for the academy, but be good enough for the first team, just because of the way Maurizio operates. So that was really good fun. And then my first sort of inter senior football in 2000, and just on 2013, was with Eddie Howe at Bournemouth. They'd just been promoted to the Championship. Um, exciting times for the club. It was going for a transition with new ownership as well, um, with Max Denham. And within that two-year period that I was there, we managed to sort of build a, you know, a comprehensive team on a, you know, a relatively moderate bud- budget and find some real gems along the way, and win the championship within two seasons and elevate to the Premier League. From there, I got the opportunity. I got approached from. Paul Mitchell and Maurizio, who I worked with at South uh, Southampton for a really exciting role at Tottenham, head of elite potential player identification, which was a new made-up. It was a quite a mouthful title, but it was uh, <laughs> quite <laughs> it was quite a your CV. Yeah, it was. It was. It does take up some space, but um, <laughs> yeah, that was quite. A, that was a. I love that role because it's a chance to. When you work with someone like Maurizio, you know, who is the coach, who's got a real passion and drive for young players to come through to the first team from the academy. So my role was to um, help Mitch set up a sort of a a scouting programme, which would be from first team down. My focus points was first team, but also underneath that 17s to 21s. And that would be trying to purchase sort of the best top talent in Europe, in the UK, and you know further afield if need be, that could not only just you know, come into the club, but could be potentially within a small period of time be challenging for a first team place at Tottenham. So that was really exciting. <clears throat> and then I then I went back to Foreign Shores again to uh, Ostersunds, and that was my first role as a technical director. I worked with uh, the current Forest Green coach now, Ian Bershnell. He was there at the time as the head coach. Um, we had a you know, really good relationship. Very small club. Um, just just come off their points of their um, of Graham Potter, so they'd done really well under him. Um, he just sort of he just left and moved on to Swansea at the time. So we built a we built a young team there that could compete in the Asfenskin and. You know, getting acquainted with some familiar faces like Ravel Morrison and Charlie mm. Colkett, we managed to integrate with into the team as well, um, which really helped Ravel to propel back his career back in England at Sheffield United and now at Derby. Uh, and then from there, I had an approach from Huddersfield quite short into my contract, so quite a long contract. I was just since they made an approach and they bought me out of my contract to start at Huddersfield, and that was a uh, Huddersfield again coming through a transition phase, new ownership, coming down from the Premier League, lots and lots going on, changing manager straight away. So there was lots of work to do in that head of football operations role. Um, so that was, you know, and that was a quite um, challenging role. But again, you know, really good club, really good people. And we managed to put some really good things in place, which are now sort of the club are getting their full fruits of. Yeah, they got into the playoffs, didn't they, this year in the championship? <laughs> Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. They they done really well on a mm. again on a moderate on a moderate budget. Um, some really clever recruitment. They've given the young coach a lot of time to work and familiarise himself with the squad. And I think if you can, especially especially in England or you know the modern day game where sometimes managers or head coaches don't get that luxury of time, this mm. was definitely a this was definitely credit to Huddersfield in in that respect, giving them um, Carlos that sort of extra year if you like because the first year if they went off that it wasn't a great season you know by his own or the team standards and they could have quite easily changed coach but they stuck with it and then the team reaped the rewards and you know, had a phenomenal season last year I mean Phil McGinley comes in here that's an obscene CV they have a true wealth of experience from all over Europe amazing stuff it truly is and I heard you mention Ravel Morrison you seem to have a soft spot for him going by your Twitter I've, I've seen a few posts for Ravel but I want to I, I will come on to him but I, I want to rewind yeah, back yeah. to when you were talking about Palace and you just you just name dropped Saha we spoke briefly about this last time as well and amongst yeah. all, all the yeah. things we were talking about in our previous conversation but how do you look at someone at a young age because I've been involved in some 
kind of young team coaching, obviously just normal grassroots kind of stuff, laying out cones, and you would turn to your mate who's coaching with you and be like, oh, he's, he's decent. But how do you notice from a young age that he could turn into a superstar? Because I know you're big in character. Could you see that from him at that early age? You can see it's very hard at that young age, but I can see snippets um, because Wilf, Wilf come over when he was about seven or eight with his family. Um, family didn't have a lot of money. They lived in an area in um, West Croydon. It was um, quite difficult for him to adapt. So I know, um, you know, money wasn't great for him at that time. And he was playing in quite a small team in the Tandridge League in Croydon, which is where you know, where the local teams of Surrey and Croydon around those areas played. It was quite a newly formed team, you know, didn't really have, sometimes wouldn't have the right kits because they couldn't, you know, couldn't afford it with parents and stuff. So, and I was actually tipped off by my sort of younger cousin who just said, dude, come and watch us play. So I came to watch us play when I had a break in coaching myself from Palace. And uh, yeah, Wilfie stood out straight away. He was, you know, he was electric, he was very quick, he was very skillful, you know, he was fearless, which which I liked as well. He was he was absolutely fearless, not afraid to, you know, because he'd never been coached, and that's what I liked about him. He had never been coached in a system or even played much in the team. So he was just, you know, going players for fun, scoring goals. But, yeah, he had that little bit of fearless street attitude in him where I suppose sometimes if he's not always the norm, but when you're sort of suffering a little bit of hardship sort of off the pitch, when you're, you know, you really sort of fight for things on the pitch. And he was certainly, he was certainly one that had that attitude where he didn't want to give in in games, even if his team was losing. He was always working really hard. So he had some really, I'd say, good like, um, attributes simmering at a young age. I mean, it's incredible. He's, he's an amazing talent. Obviously, the move to United, I think, came too soon for him. But again, he's progressed again into that Crystal Palace yeah. team. He's probably, he is their best player. One of our former yeah. players, Edward, yeah. plays for Palace now. So yeah, I do get, yeah. see him yeah. quite a lot now when I'm watching Edward play. But see as well, you were speaking about youth and like 15 to 21 and that kind of talent pool. Now within Celtic Football Club itself, I'm a big believer, like you should get a chance. Is that like Absolutely. a mantra for, is that a mantra for yourself? Because even in Ostersons and in the Swedish League and, Huddersfield, I'm sure there's a big kind of constraint and budget, so you have to look within and look look within a, a big group, as you said, like a community organisation, almost find these talents. Did that prove difficult sometimes to do that? Well, <clears throat> at Ostersons, it was um, the system was already quite set up in place, so they had this they had this system where they would say call it second chance players because. The owner at the time, Daniel Schimberg, he he wanted to create an environment where it was a no blame culture. So he wanted um, players to come in. So especially, we did have sort of elder players, but if we were going to look to spend money or acquire players, it wanted them to be more younger. So the remit was that maybe we was looking at players. We called them second chance players that had been at big academies when they were young. Maybe had some sort of exposure at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen at at their big clubs hadn't quite gone on at, yeah. that, um, at that stage and maybe gone out on loan, maybe it dropped down a level or two. So we provided the platform for them to go out and play competitive first team football in a, in a European league where the opportunities were, if you finished high enough, like any other UEFA ranking league, there was the opportunities to maybe get into, you know, the Europa league or, you know, if you won the league, then you was in the champion. You know, you potentially in the championships or playoffs. So, you know, for those young players to come in at that time, like a Charlie Colkit, like there was Thomas Isherwood, who had been at Bayern Munich and Bradford. Um, we took a young player from called Francis Baptiste from Crystal Palace, and then obviously Ravel come in as well. So, it was really a good time to for these young players to come in and sort of platform and showcase what they could actually do because they didn't actually get the opportunities before. So that's the kind of way sort of we operated in that and kept it within sort of 17 to 22, 23 sort of age range. Yeah, it's like almost as a buy the talent to sell at a higher <clears> price. <throat> I think Celtic are kind of in that market at the moment. They kind of bring the talent in at 19, 20, 21 to look for that future yeah. sell-on value further down line, depending yes. on if they're a success or not. But see the likes of Ravel Morrison, again, another one you casually name-dropped in there. But like... Yeah. He he he's like 
he was he's like a maverick I would describe him as because you've heard Alex Ferguson talk about him in glowing terms. Harry Redknapp was a big supporter of him. He's been around the block in England and by all accounts he done well over in Sweden with Fosterson's. What is it with him that he can't just quite tap into his full full potential of what he could be? Yeah, Ravel Ravel was a you know he's a, I think he's very misunderstood. He's we got to know I got to know him quite personally. You know, spending a lot of time with him in Ostersund over there as well because you know it was the one that managed to convince the ownership to sort of bring him over along with the head coach. We kind of felt a responsibility for him, and if we was reading on past reputation of you know things that are said in the press and all the other stuff, then. Mm. You know, we should have been quite worried, but he was he was the complete opposite. You know, he was a very he was quite shy in some ways. He's very very humble. Um, Love working with the young players. He's you know there's a, there's a couple of really nice stories about him where he went down to the club shop in Osserton Town Centre and would do autographs and stuff. And there was two kids that couldn't afford the shirts, and he bought them for him and pictures and signed them and stuff. And then he'd go into schools of his own back and. Even with a kit man, um, our kit man come from, um, I think it was Ethiopia, he came from, and he hadn't seen his family in four or five years. And Ravel, you know, kindly paid for his flight ticket, you know, to go and see his family, which he couldn't afford. So, you know, all these little things, I think with Ravel, he just needed to feel an environment where he was kind of loved because he, he had a hard time at Lazio previously. He was signed for one coach, coach got sacked, then he found himself in the reserves. I think his upbringing, you know, was wasn't the greatest in terms of it was quite tough for him. Single mm. parent families and stuff like that, and maybe outside influences didn't help him. Um, yeah, money as well, probably at a young age. Yeah, he, the thing is, he's the thing is with that, he was never he's quite frivolous in that respect. He was never, I never really saw him as someone motivated by money, both things because when he came from Lazio to Ostersunds, he took. You know, he took seventy five percent pay rise, uh, pay cut. <laughs> pay <come>. rise, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to come, uh, so yeah, there's no thought we could do in pay rises in Sweden, but um, yeah. So it's just little things like that. So I suppose once you get to know someone a little bit more, then you have a different, you know, you have a different yeah. understanding of them from the media. And it was really good for him to see him go back because Chris Wilder then took a chance on him for Sheffield United. Then he's you know gone on to to Derby and stuff so yeah and that was and that's what Osterson was you know it was a club that would bring these talents back to life if you like I, I think as well like the, the way you said it brings it back to that character side of things doesn't it like Morrison came over there and he's banned people's shirts he's fitting into that ethos of the club and it's like something to want to tap into yourself like deeply with as well I mean the character side of things with players is important if they're fitting the system they're fitting the culture at Celtic, Hans Postle called me himself. He's big in the ethos. He's big in his style, the way he plays. He doesn't want players going from that. In a scouting role, like when you're looking at players, no matter what club, you know you have to fit a style, you have to fit a certain culture within the club or the manager requires a certain profile of player. How do you go about identifying that? And like from the point of contact to the actual sale itself, how do you go through that kind of step-by-step? Step? Yeah, there's... <clears throat> Each club will have their own uh, set of ethos, values, philosophy, methodology, how you want to put it. And I suppose the best way to describe it was um, when we was at Bournemouth, we had sort of some key characteristics that we were trying to identify um, that because we knew the what the dress, we knew the texture of the dressing room for a start. We knew the environment of the club, the area, what it represented the playing style and philosophy. So once we got through that, we, you know, together with our scouting team and um, and Eddie Howe and, you know, his his coaching team, we come together with sort of some key characteristics. You know, we, we identify five. We're never going to identify five in all the players, but we wanted to have at least a base of understanding if he was a young player that maybe could have one or two, more of a senior player, maybe two, potentially three. And... And we're, we're trying to identify it through sort of various means. So, personally, from the scouting side, you could try identify certain certain um, like right, work ethic, hard work, communication, 
handle pressure, body language, these sort of things in games where they can give you sort of a a rough flavour of his character. Then we do all of our homework in terms of what we can find out. And then we can do in terms of what we find out on social media. So once we've got that base, that, that just, just gives us a base, then we'd match it up against, well, this is our values of our club. We kind of sort of characteristic profiling. So, and then there'll be certain, certain things that we'd look to identify within that player. And then even stuff like into his background to so see if he was a player at 2021, 20, you know, his background, if he was an overseas player, his culture, but the clubs he had played for, um, any sort of religious beliefs, any sort of cultural fits as well. So anything that we had to give us that sort of little bit of detail. And if we could marry these up with obviously his football side, the data side, then that would give us sort of a more rounded overview of yeah. the player's profile rather than, just going on using one, just using one tool as a as a decision. So we we just tried to we just tried to um, get as close as possible as you know, and then and then once the players in the building, then it was down to the second phase, what we called the second phase for the environment. Then to wrap its arms around the player, submerge himself in the culture with the coaching, and then that's his next phase of you know developing through the system. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you look back over time. I mean, you mentioned Wimbledon right at the start there. They obviously probably looked at a player and thought, I he could do it without really getting into different things, especially back in the early 2000s and the 90s and things. And yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was yeah, like yeah. that among all the, uh, the British based clubs. But see, when you look at it from outside in and like different setups within football clubs, I'll keep it the kind of Scotland at the moment. Mm-hmm. You do see a lot of changes within Scottish football. You see them kind of leaning towards director of football, te- yes. technical directors, yeah. Dundee themselves they got relegated but they've appointed Gordon Strachan as technical director Hibs have Ben Ben Kinsala I think he came from Norwich he's their head of recruitment yeah and uh, different people Stephen gone at Aberdeen what way do you find I mean yourself your personal preference at a football club the types of setup what what do you work the best in yeah for me I I think um, the technical director, sporting director role is, has been going on for sort of a, a very long time in Europe. As I mentioned, I was at Bayer Leverkusen, Moody Voller was a sporting director there. And they had a really good system of um, two players that had to come through from the academy each season. And the club was aligned in its values and its philosophy, the way it wanted to play. Um, but that was a given. Whichever coach come in, the coach had to buy into the philosophy of the club. Obviously, bring his own personality and his own style, and he's hired for you know for his expertise in that area. But it wasn't for a coach to come in to a system then and then bring you know change all the staffing structures around, mm-hmm. change the recruitment process around. They already had that structure in place, and and that's how they worked in Germany for many years. And over the last three or four years, it's definitely coming into England more. Like you mentioned, the clubs in Scotland, even some of the League One, League Two clubs now are, you know, becoming um, a little bit more forward-thinking in that in that respect. And probably given, and I think COVID has probably helped that a little bit because it's it's kind of a reset button for clubs to realise that when they are looking for what they used to call, especially in the British system, a manager, that it's far too expensive to maybe potentially have a manager bring in four or five members of staff, change a load of players around. And then if it doesn't work out, he's either relieved or someone else takes him and, and the club's left yeah. in a you know in a bit of a mess and has to start all over again. <clears throat> so I think definitely a technical a, a support um, structure that sits over there or alongside the head coach as well. So the head coach can then, operate with the with the first team with with the players underneath have a good sense of identity in the academy if it's if the club's you know forward thinking enough that he wants to recruit from within so you know he's got enough with with those areas you know managing the key staff around me planning training um forward preparations and day-to-day and day-to-day sort of planning with the players as well if you have a head of football or a sporting director whichever title the club wants to use, then I think, yeah, because there's many, there's many, there's many ways they want to use it. But then I think then a good sporting director would definitely have recruitment as, as one of his sort of overviews. 
definitely have a definitely have I would say definitely Academy would have to be one of his remits, along with some of the key departments in terms of sort of sports science, analytics, medical, and you know, stretching maybe even to like the women's team as well, if if the club has yeah. a women's as a, as a girls team. So and then I think that's really good in that way because then you're getting a core philosophy throughout the teams, not only just the men's team, the women's team, the academy. So and then a coach now uh, I, I do speak to I speak to other fellow sporting directors are doing a lot more sort of coach profiling to fit their clubs. So instead of maybe sort of a merry-go-round of old, you know, not say old school managers, but certain managers always coming around as different jobs, it's really good now because you're getting younger coaches that you know extremely talented coming from under 23s that maybe have had a good season at yep. lower level, maybe have been a you know an outstanding assistant manager for someone. So. And they're getting opportunities, you know, to 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 make their own mark as a first team coach, as a head coach, sorry. But and I think that's where the game is, you know, becoming better for more opportunities for for that. And if you're going to appoint sort of a younger coach into that system, then definitely a you know a sporting director to support around them would would be in in my in my opinion would be the best way to go. Yeah, I mean, you made a great point in the structure. It's good to have that in place in case something drops out, you can replace that seamlessly with, as you said, if they're building yeah. coaching profiles. Yeah. And you brought up a really good point in terms of like younger managers. And I like to see that because it's forward thinking. Don't, yes. Well, the former yeah. Dundee United manager now, Tom Courts, it was his, his yeah. first professional job last season. He got them into Europe. Now, now he's away to Hungary. Tony Ashgar, yes. their um, chief yeah. executive, replaced him with another good manager, Jack Ross. So it's kind of continuing that kind of trend. And strange love Absolutely. the doctor comes in. I do encourage us, by the way, in the comments, get involved, ask questions. How important is psychology and profiling a player in today's game? Yeah, it's massive. It's, I think it's one of the underrated traits that still needs to be developed. So, um, obviously, there's a lot of use of data out there. Data is phenomenally useful and fantastic. And, you know, in a modern day game, you can't, most clubs now you can't function without some sort of data program that can utilize your recruitment your analysis and give you sort of that you know that that wider berth to the you know to the areas you got access to but psychological profiling or you know characteristic scouting is is extremely difficult it was I suppose for me personally it was more of a fascination because I was always interested in um, sort of human behavior human beings you know, player development and and I did a master's in sports psychology as well because I was fascinated in that in that particular area, you know, how players, you know, can grow and elevate in different environments. So it's definitely for me a it's definitely being taken more seriously now. I think you've got to be have a sort of good understanding of of um psychology to to delve into these areas. So, you know, sort of a if somebody's a head of recruitment, if they have got a, a particular background of a sports psychology or that sort of um, profiling background combined with their expertise in the football field, that will definitely help because, again, it's a specialist. It's a specialist subject you'd have to know because you, well, one thing with human beings is unpredictable. We can't, no one can ever, with data, the numbers, they are what they are. But behind the data, there's always a reason. It's the psychology of the human being that, produces the data and we don't know what goes on in their daily lives or how things affect them or you know what their personal lives are saying that could affect performance from could have a great run for four or five months and suddenly dip off and then do we just drop off drop him off the chart because the data has just suddenly dipped for me that would mm. potentially indicate maybe a change in his personal life so this is where you have to be sort of really clever of combining it all together is it like this is going to probably sound really novice, and I do I, I do apologise for it, but is it like the no case worries. of you, you look at a player at his profile, how long he spends at clubs? If it's one year, or two years, you're wondering why is there no like longevity? You look at his profile charts, and it's like he scores ten this season, but it's two in the next season. Does really yeah. match up? Is that the yeah. kind of way you look at it, or is that just kind of an amateur way to think about things there? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, listen, it's it's always good to measure sort of the consistency. It's something we look for more. Well. I've always asked, asked my team to look out for, especially in the attacking players, of those consistency patterns, maybe um, over two, three seasons. And if there is dips and there is curves that 
you know, the, the alternate and change that, then, you know, the question is, do, I would always say we don't just walk away because this season he's got 15 goals and the season after he's only maybe only scored nine or 10. Yeah. You know, then the season after that, he's gone back up to, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 goals again. So that doesn't, that doesn't indicate that he's year two, that he was a bad player. That indicates that there could have been something going on behind behind the scenes that's affected him. So on that way, you'd see that as a positive consistency pattern. If he's completely gone off, you know, where he's had a you know really good season, and this next season he hasn't, he's not producing or firing goals or producing any sort of output on his um, on his data, then there could be for me. I, I always like to know curiously what the reasons are behind that to see if there is you know because for me talent don't just drop off the charts it doesn't just go no. away there's always there's always a reason behind of that and it could be a reason that you know why we don't sign him or it could be a reason why we do sign him so but it's best just to get some clarity on that sort of understanding of why this has happened first before before we make a decision you can kind of apply it to any sort of walk of life can't you i mean if you work in a high pressure environment if you if you're just for example in, in a sales environment and you're popping off 10 sales a week and then you drop the two there is a, there is an obviously an issue there to kind of be recognised. I, I do agree hundred percent. Yeah. If we go back, if we go back to setups, I mean, I don't know if you keep much up to date with like Celtic going on and the kind of news, but they appointed Mark Lowell as head of um, recruitment and scouting. He was previously, yeah, he was previously involved with the City Group and as a head of uh, their kind of scouting network across their whole thing. But before I went to that appointment, the City Group kind of interests me in terms of what they do, the clubs they own. Is that, in my opinion, it looks like it's kind of putting monopoly on football if they own all these different clubs and lab a talent pool. Do you think that can come across as a negative side of thing as maybe being the, the smaller teams can't get an advantage or would they say it as they're banning these clubs, giving them the talent to use and it's a win-win? What way do you see them kind of partnerships working? Yeah, I think their intentions are you know, positive in terms of what, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to... Um, support these clubs as well because they're not just purchasing the clubs and leaving them to run. There is sort of a plan and a structure behind it that um, whichever whichever club they look to purchase or some of the clubs they have beyond City, there's always a there's always a potential growth within the club. Maybe the club has underperformed the last few years, has fell on hard times financially. So, and they proved that they can sort of restructure clubs in you know in a good way. So in in that way, it's you know, super positive and players can come out of those pools and get the opportunities to go between, you know, their own clubs or move between other clubs. And it also produces sort of a, you know, a lot of good coaches. I think Liam Manning come from that, MK Don's coach. So he came from that with an opportunity to coach in Belgium for one of the second division teams. So the platforms for talent, staff-wise, player-wise is is good. Uh, potentially some people might see it as sort of an aggressive strategy trying to cornerstone areas of the markets in different you know in different regions different countries different parts of Europe South America Asia etc so I think it's just it's just it's just by it it depends on which viewpoint which person who you talk to would have the bias for me I see it as quite uh, quite positive because there's talent that's come through it and managed to maybe platform themselves and go on to different clubs if if city if city group have hadn't have interjected so um so far it seems to me as a positive um some other people might disagree but that was that'd be my take on it it is it is a bit of a strange one i mean strange of the data again comes in the, the city group has gained the massive sample size by on so many clubs it's a data gold mine and it probably is there's so much kind of data coming yeah. from that scouting ways networks building up these organizations yeah. and you mentioned Liam Manning. We got Pasta Cogley from one of the city's own clubs in Japan. Do you know what I mean? Yokohama. Yes. So it is a win-win for us. And speaking about the, the type of the model that Celtic have at the moment with Mark Lowell as head of recruitment, did you ever hear him before? Or is that a name that's cropped up from you, for you in the football community? Yeah, actually, um, I spoke to your, your current coach when I was at Huddersfield briefly when we was looking for a new coach. And, you know, I found him really... Yeah. Yeah, we spoke to him when he was because when we was doing our coach profile, we obviously his his name became interesting to us because of the style he played. Um, you know, he was very attacking. We we did a lot of work on the way his teams played and how he was with a coach and his previous success with Australia. 
And at the time, we couldn't, from where he was, Huddersfield couldn't quite, we couldn't move it forward as quickly as we wanted to, which was a shame at the time because I found him, you know, we had um, uh, some chats on the phone and I found him fascinating. And I thought he would be a good fit for a, a British club, definitely, especially with his mannerism, his character and, and his playing style is, you know, is, is quite easy on the eye. Um, it's very Guardiola-esque in a lot of ways. That's ah, it. yeah. I see basically sort of models, you know, he's got his own stamp on it. Of course he has, but that's a, maybe if he was to say a platform. So, but yeah, I've, it was, there was no doubt when he was appointed at Celtic, he would be successful given, you know, he had a, a little bit of a shaky start, which would be expected, but two or three months in, once once the players got used to his way of working, his philosophy, playing style, man management, etc. I knew that he would, you know, become really successful and really pleased for him. See, that's interesting because Phil McGinley comes in again and said in an interview, he spoke to Southern a few years ago and I have to say, uh, David, I'm so happy he didn't get him, to be honest, because he's an absolute, he's a godsend. And the, the way you said, like, you, you wanted to move along quickly, was that kind of like saying that he was going to be the first choice or was there candidates in that? He was definitely, he was definitely one of a few up there. Um, we had a, a when we was looking for a head coach, we had sort of a massive um, influx of sort of applications and interest in the role, which naturally, because Huddersfield just come down from the Premier League and had a really good competitive squad for the championship. So, um, yeah, once we narrowed it down, we did our own sort of profile and work on coaches of, of what we wanted and the sort of playing style and um, certain things with like academy production. And there was sort of various points. And when we sort of narrowed it down, and we looked into looked into him further. He came out sort of you know really well. So we we made contact and we had a chat. And he was yeah he was great to chat to. You know he was very on board with you know working with someone like myself, like a head of football type role that could you know support him around around the football inside. So he could just solely focus on the team and bringing young players through and performances. So that that's but fundamentally what we was looking to do so yeah very interesting guy but we couldn't there was a sort of a time frame that under the new ownership wanted to because the team hadn't been winning um hadn't been winning too well at the time and I think they hadn't won a game in 17 so because being where he was in you know in Asia it was it was a bit harder to move on quickly so it was a bit it was very unfortunate for Huddersfield but obviously Huddersfield's lost Selwick's game Hundred percent. I mean, that process took ages for Selby to get him across. Obviously, isolation. And just to let you know, Paul's giving you a bit of stick here. He wants you to stick on a lamp. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's just the, the viewers giving you a fun. Like you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Hold on. I'll um. I'll see if I can get it on from here. <laughs> but I yeah, post accordingly. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. as you said, he's a fascinating guy. And what strikes me about him the most is that he seems real. He seems genuine. His style of play is for everyone to see. The inverted fullback yeah. was so foreign to a Scottish yeah. club. I know Bayern Munich done it with Pep and City. And as you yeah, said, yeah. he came from the City organisation. So see in them, in them conversations, did you speak about tactics and things and what way it would play out and forward-thinking yeah. plans and things, just in case? Yeah, absolutely. We, had a, we spoke a lot about... Um, like how we wanted to progress at the time at Huddersfield as a club. We spoke a lot about um, his playing style. You know, he played a 4-3-3 formation, the way he liked to sort of develop. He did like to develop play from the back and play through the third, dominate possession. Once he got into the attacking areas, would like to sort of dominate the opponents and attack spaces as quickly as possible, but also have a lot of high possession in good areas where Sometimes if the teams were set up in low blocks or become more defensive. So I found him quite an articulate and intelligent man that understood the game to a, you know, to a higher level. He obviously knew his system inside out and he knew how to, you know, to use his system against, you know, various teams, against various formations that, you know, might play different styles to his. So he was very, sort of very well informed of, um, had a good understanding of the championship as well, I would say. Let me just see if yeah. I can get these blinds open. Conscious, can't see me. Can't see me. <laughs> look at you, Don. There you go. We're flying. I know. 
he put me off my game. How about that? How about that? <laughs> he's back in the room. There you go, Paul. There you go. He's back. We're all, they're all concerned, saying that energy prices are soaring. That's why he doesn't want to turn on the lights. But here, oh, he's not. He's not wrong there. He's not wrong. Hundred percent, hundred percent. But back to Foster Coglu. I mean, the way he, he comes across, as you as you said, the way he plays. We had the Japanese journalist Dan Orwitz on our show here a couple of weeks ago, and he explained that at the start of the season he was kind of misunderstood because he said he, he's more about attack instead of defence. But what he meant was defence takes care of itself because he presses high. Wins the ball high, counter presses, and yeah. kind of gets the goals from there. Because if you look at Celtic this season, David Lilabada, Felipe Yad on the wings, are has goal contributions along with Kyogo um, and Mieda and people like that. Jack and Magus come on the scene towards the latter part of the season. But speaking about like scouting and the transfer window now and what, what's kind of happening in, in this process, Postacoglu is big in different markets. He's mentioned Japan, he's mentioned Iran, Saudi Arabia. Were you aware of these markets and kind of the potential in them with Kyogo? Have you ever heard of these any of these players? Yeah, it's, they do come up in terms of the clubs that I was operating at Tottenham. We, you know, we had a phenomenal scouting system. So, you know, we was we concentrated on certain markets based on sort of the way Potts played. But you know, we would, you know, we would, we would know the Asian players, the South American market. We would know sort of from the Middle East. As well, any potential players that fitted our remit that would flag potentially if there was any outliers in there, we definitely knew. So if there was 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds, you know, he could form scoring goals, you know, putting in outstanding performances from these further afield countries, we would definitely know about them. So I think, I think sometimes it's people always worried about the adaptation. Could they come in and sort of cope with physical football and stuff? But I think with with your current coach, what he's got is he's got a lot of faith in his own methodology. He's got yeah. he's got faith in players where he's not looking at you know they come from Asia, they come from the Middle East, they come from Europe. Could be you know Scottish. He sees players as players, players as values, and he sees them as people. And I think that's how that's what makes him kind of you know really successful. So he's not afraid to. You know, go go further afield. For me, talented players are talented players. You know, as long as you're aware of their, you know, if they are coming from these countries, their cultural beliefs, their religious beliefs, it could be certain things. Huh. You've got to be aware of when they are coming from 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 lands further afield. But if you can integrate them in part of your system, like he's done really well, then sure. I mean, there's talent is talent. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the likes of Kyogo. He came in, he was his first signing from Japan and he does he does set the SPL alight. His movement, I mean, it's second to none. And then you got Rio Watate come in. You got Edoguchi, although albeit he was injured. Do you know what I mean? Players like that. And it's Mieda. His present, have you seen him play? His yeah, present yeah. is insane. He just keeps going and keeps going. But see, in, in terms of the kind of model Celtic have now with Mark Lowell appointed head of recruitment, we spoke last year about any of this being in place, right? And Mark Lowell, to me, seems like a forward-thinking appointment. I don't know what the opinion of the guy is in the football and kind of director of football role within your kind of eyes and things, but do you see this as a positive thinking step from Anz? Because he worked with him at, at Yokohama. He brought some players in with him. Do you think this is kind yeah. of correlation with Anz, Postacoglu? Yeah, absolutely, because I think for definitely definitely helping because if you've got someone that you've had a good relationship before, you're both on the same alignment of the way that you're going to look to develop the club, develop the recruitment strategies, develop the philosophies. I think if when you're looking at recruiting players, if the sporting director understands the coach and what the club's needs are and can identify players to fit into those remits, then you're definitely, you'll get, you'll get a lot more output, a lot more success doing it that way. So the fact that they work together is, um, it, it definitely definitely shows that there's a positive step in that direction. That they're looking to be on the same hymn sheet, if you like, in terms of you know their thinking and progression and their ambition. And it can only get stronger. It can only get it can only get yeah. stronger for the club, especially going into the second and third season. If they can maintain that alignment, you know it's only good things for Celtic to go and build on. Yeah, hundred percent. And Egyptian King comes in here. I've never seen a player. I love, I love a manager as much as we Hugo and big hands. It's it's unbelievable. And strange of the doctor again, Dave comes in. How important is AI in alerting clubs to out 
outland player metrics and player performances today at the top level. I've seen a lot of that recently in, in terms of the game. Is that something you've came across? Yeah, it is. And it is, again, still quite a little bit underdeveloped. There's no sort of, again, no foolproof metrics out there that can guarantee success. It's always tipping the odds as much as you can in your favour. But it, for me, when, you, when you're using AI, when you're using a form of psychology, a form of metrics... You have to, there's there's always two key points when you're recruiting players. There's always, you have to understand the metrics and all this of your own club, first and foremost. And you have to understand the metrics of where the player is coming from. And if you can get some correlations and matching between those, then you've got, you know, a better chance of success of them developing through that system. So it, it yeah. all depends on it all depends on how it's used it and again what expertise they have around it, you know, how how it's being used, what's its functionality, you know, how much impact is it having in terms of recruitment or player profiling or, you know, day to day player care, you know, even even can use can, can be develop it in those areas as well, sort of your own not just recruiting players, but use it for your own players for coaches to build better connection to understand their players a lot more as well. So it hopefully um, it should over the next as date has sort of has kicked on and now it's sort of the big thing that people use. If this can be developed in a certain way where you can get some really good quality work in these areas, it's only going to enhance the performance because psychology is always going to be an unknown quantity because you just can't guarantee mm-hmm. human behavior from day to day. I think as well that you use AI now to kind of predict injuries and when it's going to happen. I've seen that yeah. being implemented at certain clubs and it's quite interesting to see where that's going. And Phil McGinley comes in, David. He says, David mentioned Southampton earlier on running down a CV. Who at St Mary's has got their eye on Celtic results as they seem to come for our players more than any other team? Can you answer that one? <laughs> uh, oh, because of Van Dyke's previous. Yeah. <laughs> big Van Dyke. Wanyama. Yeah, Wanyama as well. I, I think I, I think in terms of, you know, it's it's sometimes when you're looking at, if you look at those particular two players like Van Dijk and Wanyama, I think when you're looking at, because the Scottish League still can be quite physical and quite demanding. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at transference of skills, as these particular players like Van Dijk came from Holland, where if he was a central defender, he probably wasn't getting much physical contact because they're encouraged to play out from the back. You know they tend to drop off a little bit more. They're not so much a, you know, ultra aggressive pressing teams, pressing monsters. So, I think I think for clubs like Southampton, when they're looking at players like this, they look at yes, he's got the technical competence coming from Holland, but then you're looking to imagine against the physicality where Celtic at the time were. You know they're in Europe, they're getting exposed to play big teams. Obviously they're being very competitive in their own domestic league. So I think that becomes sort of an interest of someone like a Southampton that. I'm not really going to compete for the, you know, the top players in the world like, you know, Man City or Chelsea or Liverpool. So they have to look for players on the rise. So at the time, Van Dijk and Wanyama, they were definitely two players on on the up. There were two players um, that were... Um, did Armstrong come from there as well? Armstrong, yeah, there was another yeah, one. Yeah, Armstrong. <laughs> he, was a, he, was a, he was a Dundee originally, wasn't he? He was a Dundee United. I, I remember looking at yeah. him for, for Bournemouth. But he... Um, yeah, I think I think that's what they look to. They look for them sort of polished gems that are playing in you know competitive league that they get a chance for European exposure. They get exposed to that little bit of physicality in the British system, and with their other attributes, then they could have the potential quality to play in the Premier League. And Southampton have always been a a good grounding for these type of players as well that can go on and develop yeah. through their system a little bit, and then maybe sometimes like Van Dijk go on. You know, for the for the top teams, Van Dijk's he's head and shoulders the best centre back in the world at the moment. Like I think he's absolutely incredible. When Yama, remember he he came in from Gearshot in, in Belgium and would pay like six hundred thousand pound for him. No one knew what to expect, and he played against Barcelona and beat them two one. Scored that header. At, he, he was an incredible player, good defensive midfielder. And you, you mentioned Armstrong. He's one player I really miss because I think he breaks the lines really well. He picks he the does, ball up. Yeah. He can dribble. He can score. And he's seen the importance for him for Scotland the other night. He scored a couple of cracking goals as well that picked their form up. 
which is incredible. And in terms of the kind of rounded off as well, and I know we're stressing there they are here. Appreciate your time, David. The no analytical problem. side of the analytical side of things within football. I know we kind of touched upon it, but is that where you're seeing it going now with like every club and even even clubs over where I live in, in Ireland and in the north of Ireland? You see the, the semi professional teams that have the, the things around their waist, like they, they, their yeah. chest, they measure their running speed and their physicality, how, how far they can jump. And this is semi professional. It seems like it's just going that way throughout football, the organisations. Yeah, they are. I think teams now, in the even, like you mentioned, that, you know, teams, semi professional teams or sort of like, um, League One, League Two teams or teams that, you know, are not what you'd associate with being sort of. Um, Within the modern trends, are are adapting to it because a lot of the clubs, especially here in England, like League One, League Two clubs, even National League clubs now, they're they're using you know various data data forms in terms of especially on their fitness side with their heart measurements and you know GPS and tracking systems and stuff. But even there's there's so much data out there where you can use your analysis, in, you know, for the opposition. You can use data to pinpoint players to help them in your certain remits. You know, there's various ways that you can use data to work for your club. And if you, there's so many sort of young, talented sort of analysts or analytical young coaches coming into the game. There's lots of great ideas that can sort of manufacture stuff for the smaller clubs. You know, probably less cost effective than some of the bigger um, data packages out there. It's it's it. Anything that you can get an edge to, you know, is, is is will give will give your club a fantastic advantage. And data, is, you know, in its purest form, can Liverpool use it at the highest level really well. Then, oh, you know, yeah. I, I know Newport County use it really well in League in League One and Notts County in, in the National League, and like you say, some of your some of the clubs in Ireland. So it's definitely the way forward. I think sometimes if you can just if you speak to some of the top data experts, that they all say about condensing it down because sometimes you can have data overload. And sometimes with data, too much of it can can stifle your decision-making from your natural instincts. So if you've got an array of data that can tell you, if you had, a, say, for example, you had a certain uh, gut feeling or an instinct about a player or a situation within your football club and the data might tell you different, then then obviously that can sometimes be a conflict of interest. It can also maybe prolong decisions where yeah. in, a, in a vicious market like football, sometimes you haven't got that luxury of waiting. So as if, if you talk to the top people that use it at the highest levels, they try and condense it down, simplify it as much as possible and use it as a really powerful way to enhance decision-making, but not to be the decision-maker. If that makes sense, I think makes I think as well. Like you mentioned, like there's all sorts of data: xG, expected goals, conceded goals, expected points, that type of thing. And sometimes when I'm on Twitter and I'm going through the pages, and it tells you what they expect, and you're looking at tables, you're going, you don't really understand it. A hundred percent get get where you're coming from in terms of that overload and the professional top clubs doing it in a different way. But sometimes, in my opinion, the naked eye plays a good part too. What you see sometimes Absolutely. is what you get. Yeah. Do you know, I don't know what yeah. your opinion is on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You can't take away from your raw natural instincts. You know, I, I you know, I, I've, you know, made a really good career out of that in terms of my recruitment. Just having that sort of natural understanding and instinctive understanding, especially of players that I'm looking at for to recruit into my to, to my club, without knowing the data. Sometimes, you know, you mm-hmm. if you understand your club really well and you understand football and you understand you know, human beings and basic sort of elements of psychology, you are going to have, you know, a really good understanding and feel. It's not always going to be right a lot of the time, but you can't, for me, you can't ignore that. You can't, you can't, you can't, that's something that's, that could be a key decision where it could win or lose you a player, win or lose you a game. So just as important as data is because data sometimes, they say, can overthink it and sometimes... Yeah. If you think too much, then it's gonna, you know, you could end up with the wrong decision. A hundred percent. I think as well, you you look at it, and as you said, pro- prolonging the decision. Just for example, it's signing a player. You don't make that choice. You wait three or four weeks, and then he's gone, and he has a crack and season yeah. somewhere else. Sometimes you need to trust your gut. And just while we were on air, David Celtic have uh, announced the signing of Swiss goalkeeper Benjamin Segris on a four-year contract, formerly of Dundee United last year. So again, 
a great show all, all around here, like a new signing for Selby coming <laughs> in. But what is your future ambitions for you? Where, where do you see yourself? That sounds like a CV. It sounds like I'm interviewing you. But like, where do you want to be? Yeah, I've had um, I've had a good think about this over the last few months because I've just been doing some sort of independent consulting work while I was sort of pondering my next my next move. I'm in a good position now where um, I'm ready to go ready to go back in for the right project. Absolutely, but for me, it has to be the right project. And with my background as well, you know, I'd be looking at you know a very good sporting director project or even a head coach's project to work alongside a very good sporting director. Um, and and using my skill set that way, so I have spoke to a couple of clubs on both. Um, but it's just for me, it's just a project that I really get the feel for that it's going to really excite me. Whether I can, because each clubs I think and we have in this debate in England about you know sport directors, coaches, can they overlap? But in Europe, they've been doing it for for years. Mm-hmm. Sporting directors will go into a coaching role quite easily, and over here sometimes because sporting directors are not seen in the same value they think they're sort of just you know at you know statisticians or recruitment experts but so those are the two sort of main areas I'm focused on and it would be you know the the interesting project for me I think the most one of the most famous people that kind of goes between roles is Ralph Ragnack he upstairs yes. and then he's downstairs yeah. coaching and stuff yeah, he's, yeah. he's an incredible yeah. coach He's an Austrian eye, but obviously didn't work out for him at Manchester United. But again, I do thank you for your time, David. But to finish off, I think it made you do your your dream team last time yes, you were on your five to side dream did, team. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. This is this is purely of players you identified yourself. What would okay. your five to side be? Uh, so Zaha, we'd have to include in there. So uh, Tottenham, Callum Wilson, Bournemouth. I, I'd say. Smith Road from when I took to Huddersfield, even though I didn't identify him for Arsenal, but he he turned the season around, so I'd have to include what him a player. in there, I think. What a player. Yeah, he, he was phenomenal. And um I'm gonna go for Dan Goslin when he was at Bournemouth as well, because we signed him on a free at Newcastle and he was probably one of the most underrated players um in terms that he never got deployed. It's like a Callum or some of the you know, some of the other players, but you know, what a player. Um, great engine, great character. You know, it was that glue in the middle of the park. So, yeah. And a free transfer from Newcastle, which was even better. Yeah, 100%. Get that value from money in there, isn't it? So it's yeah, yeah. Dan, Gos- Dan Gosling, Emil Smith-Rowe, Wilfred Saha, Callum Wilson, and Hugh Monsung Mung- yeah. for Tottenham. Yeah. What, what a team. What a team. Put Son by himself. He'll score all the goals. Yeah, I That's know. incredible. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Just quickly, how'd you find him? How'd you get him? I actually didn't even ask you about him. Yeah, no, Song was, he was, um, he was at Leverkusen and when, when I first came to Tottenham again, he fit the, re- the remit of a young player that um, had had a good season at Leverkusen, not outstanding but good, but he ticked some of the attributes that, that, that we was looking for. We knew Poch could develop, so it wasn't just what he was doing on the ball and his output. It was, like you say, you say some of your players at Celtic, he was an absolute pressing machine and he could yeah. run beyond, he's run beyond the ball as well. Like selfishly, like you see him now, he's run when he links off players, you know, it was incredible. So it just, just needed to be refined. And we knew that we had the coach in Maurizio to do that. And obviously I understood by Leverkusen, the way it developed players and stuff. And, how he developed through that system and he came through sort of came through that and we've managed to watch him you know quite a few times I watched him four times myself he was a player I put forward and we was you know really fortunate enough to get him at the time because we was a little bit under the radar he wasn't attracting the interest of you know the big club so he came mm-hmm. to us relatively cheap like 15 million or something for, for a Tottenham cheap. signing yeah it was really <laughs> Sounds good like we'll their budget <laughs> no no so yeah is yeah he's um he's a phenomenal player and a phenomenal phenomenal character well David again I appreciate you coming on what a five-a-side team of players you identified and what a guest you've been have you enjoyed it this time around video yeah no as well? loved it loved it thank you for having me back on really really enjoyed it Brilliant, brilliant. And to everyone who's watched along, stay well and keep safe. Heel, heel.